I've got to tell you something about the bush, by the way. Um, a couple of weeks ago, my wife needed to have a burning bush in Sabbath school. She called me on a Thursday and says, can you find one for me? I was heading over here to, to um, Harbor Freights. You know where that is, down the street. And um, so I'll check in, check in Goodwill. And uh, found an actual bush in there. <laughs> That's it, you know. Took a picture of it, sent it to her. She said, get it. I splurged. I spent five bucks for that. <laughs> but it makes a good illustration. be a hard one to forget. We've been talking about Jesus. And we've been talking about the fact that Jesus is on a road. He's heading back to Jerusalem. Last week, Jesus was in Jericho. And if you remember, I said something to the effect that Jericho was only 20 miles from Jerusalem. It's an uphill climb, but the folks in those days uh, would do it a little, quite a bit better than we could and do it in less than a day's journey. He has now, from our scripture today, from last week's, has arrived in Jerusalem. There's been the triumphal entry, the cleansing of the temple, the blessing of the children, teaching every day in the, in the temple. Passover is just ahead. He has just corrupted everything that was happening in that place by his presence. It was so bad that the um, leaders sent out people to try and entrap him in a number of ways. Uh, not only was there interchange between Jesus and individuals representing, representing the um, uh, powers that be, but they actually had spies, we discover in this chapter, that were following him till finally, of last resort, this one group of individuals shows up that we haven't seen yet in all of the book of Luke. Luke will refer to them eventually in, when he writes Acts, but uh, it's the Sadducees. And the Sadducees, as Luke puts it, are noted because they do not believe in the resurrection and they also don't believe in angels. The reason for that, and I suggested that in the children's story, is that the Sadducees maintained that Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, just those five books were Scripture. Everything else, they said, came from an oral tradition, an oral scripture that was eventually written down in the laws and the prophets and in the writings, which were not as acceptable as those first books. So if you could not find a teaching and understanding there, it was inappropriate. It was not kosher. It was not acceptable. And of course, the resurrection, they felt, could not be found in the books of Moses. And so they came with a trick question and with an almost soap opera-ish type of um, case study that they wanted Jesus to make a judgment on. Teachers at this particular time often were people that uh, 
made a judgment on issues in families. We saw this already in a couple of places as Jesus has traveled to Jerusalem, where somebody came and said, I want you to solve this problem that I have with my brother. And uh, Jesus refused to solve it. But teachers who were understanding of Scripture, not just Moses, but the writings and the prophets, teachers could say, well, here's what Scripture says. So oftentimes they would pass judgment. So they came to Jesus with this judgment. And by the way, remember, you have the text in your bulletin if you'd like to follow along with it. They began by saying, and it's here in the text, Moses wrote for us. I thought that was interesting, by the way. A representative of the Sadducees, Moses wrote for us. Was he referring to the group of Sadducees or for all of Judaism or for all of people? It's probably for all of people, but the claim, that minutia of saying, it's for us, uh, is an interesting thing at this point. Moses claimed that if a brother died, if a man's brother dies, leaving a wife with no children, it was the responsibility of that brother to marry the wife and to have a child by her and raise the child in the name of his brother. Do you follow all of that? Kind of simple, straightforward. This was not just a tradition, a custom, a dictate for, Jude, for Jews, it also covered many other Mesopotamian groups of that early period. In other words, if I died and I didn't have a child, and if I had a brother, my brother would have a responsibility to marry my widow and have a child with her, and then raise the child in my name. For the sake of preserving my inheritance, preserving the widow, that she had a place to be, there was no welfare at this particular point, and to have children that could protect the mother even beyond that point of time. It served a very practical social purpose, but was very complicating. The classic story we have is of Ruth. Naomi, with her husband Abimelech, had gone to Moab. They left Bethlehem, which, by the way, means house of bread. And if you read Scripture, it says there's a famine in the house of bread. Doesn't make sense, does it? Maybe they didn't like bread. But they moved to Moab. Their two girls married, or their two sons married girls from Moab. The sons died. Abimelech died. Naomi had no reason to stay and started back home. You remember the story? Oprah turned, returned to Moab. Ruth said, you know, that classic one, we use it in weddings. Uh, Whether thou goest, I will go. Wherever you stayeth, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Great words. Came back to Bethlehem. 
Uh, she goes gleaning in the field of a near relative. Ruth kind of conspires to get that happening and uh, spends the night on the threshing floor. And the next day, Obed goes out to establish a relationship, a marriage with Ruth, but there's a next of kin that had first dibs, first rights. He said, uh, would you take the land? No, yeah, I'll take the land. He says, there's a catch. Uh, Ruth comes with it. He says, no, I'm not going to do it. I do not want to compromise my children's inheritance. So you find in the genealogy of Jesus, Ruth listed a Moabite, her son has a son who has a son who is David. But that particular law that the Sadducees are referring to is a very heart of the David story, the beginning of it. So here's the law. The widow is to be taken by her dead husband's brother, and a child raised in his brother's name. Now they give the case study. And here's, I can imagine the crowd starting to laugh about this because it is interesting, it is complicated, it is classic soap opera. There were seven brothers, the first married and died childless, then the second, and then the third married her, and so the same till all seven died childless. Finally, the woman also died. And here is the trick question. In the resurrection, therefore, remember they don't believe in the resurrection, and this is to prove that there is no resurrection. In the resurrection, whose wife would this woman be? for there are seven that had married her. Quite a question. What would Jesus say? Let me give you a little more background about this group of Sadducees. They were wealthy. They were primarily in the area of Jerusalem. They were individuals that uh, uh, were very conservative, conservative in their religious thinking but very, very liberal in their politics. They had sided with the Romans. The Romans have chose them. They conspired and uh, worked together regarding, regarding the governance of Judah and Jerusalem and Jewish people. They held a high position and were somewhat respected based on the money they had and the positions that they held. They came in the form as leaders, and they were hoping that when Jesus would answer their question, he would say something about Moses being wrong and the resurrection right, or the resurrection, or Moses being right and the resurrection wrong. Either way, they figured he'd lose a sizable amount of people in his following, and they thought they had a sure trap. And so it is to this group 
that Jesus is responding. And Jesus said to them, and I want you to notice this. You may want to even mark this, I would think. It is kind of interesting what Luke does here. He said, those that belong to this age, marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy of a place in that age and in the resurrection from the dead, neither married nor given marriage. Now, what was interesting to me was those great theological terms Jesus uses to divide and discern the ages. There's this age and there's that age. How much simpler can it be? The age we're living in, it's this age. The age to come, it's that age. And Jesus says something here about marrying and giving in marriage. He says, in this age, you get married. You have children. And you continue the generations that follow. In that age, the age to come, you don't marry. Now, this has been a puzzle for many of us over the years. I like whom I'm married to. And I wouldn't mind for that to continue in the age to come. Um, but sometimes the things in this age don't translate very well into that age. But Jesus is talking about something very different. Because it had said, those in the resurrection will be like angels. Not that they do not marry, but they do not die. And the necessity of marriage was to protect the species, the race, the people, with children that followed on after us when we were gone. In heaven, you don't need children because life was everlasting. There is a hope. There is a future. So the purpose of marriage, of providing family, Jesus is saying, is not necessary in heaven. On earth, it is clearly necessary. But in heaven, it is unnecessary because there is no death. Do you follow Jesus' thinking here? It's kind of interesting, isn't it? Our problem is, and I may talk about this a little more, is that we look at where we are now and think of this as a norm for all things. But there's a difference between this age and that age. And you look in the book of Revelation, particularly chapter 21, where there is a struggle on the part of the revelator to describe what heaven is like. And the only way he can do it is in terms of what is here. And he looks around what is here and reflects upon what he saw in heaven and says, well, in heaven there are no tears. Tears is very common here. In heaven there is no death. In heaven there is no sin. In heaven there is no sea. He's on an island, you know, would like to get off. He's in prison. There's no sea. Don't have to worry about those things. Heaven is put in terms of what we know here because we do not have the understanding or the language to clearly express what heaven is. And the only thing we can do is to say, 
well, some of these practices here are not what is there. And so Paul would write, I hath not seen nor heard of the glories, the wonders of what God is preparing for his people. It is beyond what we can even fathom because it is not part of our language and our thinking system. But there is something that Jesus does in this passage that I think is radical. And when you read this, I think you need to hear it within this context. The question the Pharisees, the um, Sadducees asked Jesus after they told their story. In the resurrection, whose wife will the woman be? Let's go back to the retelling of the story and Jesus may be hearing it. Can you imagine the trauma of those brothers, one dying after another? Look at that. In, in two short verses, there are seven funerals. A life that is totally disrupted. And I can imagine Jesus hearing the story. First the oldest, then the next brother, the next brother, the next brother, all the way down to number seven. And the empathy that Jesus had that Jesus could not help but have. Feelings that he had for people that you and I cannot have. Because of his deep, deep love for all humanity. And I can imagine coming to his lips after, well, the seventh time and saying, what about her? Where is she? Can I see her? And callously, the Sadducee said, well, she's dead too. And they get to the question. No understanding. In the resurrection, who does she belong to? Did you catch that in the text? It's about women and who owns them. Marriage was a woman that was given to a man. Was passed on in this particular incident as a piece of property in the family. That served to providing children for the family. Which one does she belong to now, they ask because she is only a piece of property. This still carries over in some of our weddings of today. I hate it and I refuse to use it if I can help it at all. If there's insistence, I'll do it. But uh, probably use different words. But you've heard in the wedding, the liturgy, that said, Who giveth this woman to be married to this man? And the father stands up and says, my wife and I do. You've been there? You've heard that? It's a carryover from this time that women are properties. 
that can be used in a transaction and given to somebody else in marriage. Jesus said, in heaven, there is no giving marriage or giving in marriage. Women in heaven are not properties. Do you hear that? This is radical for Jesus' day, and it's even radical for us today, that in heaven, women are not properties. It's a wonder that Paul, in writing for the new age, the age that is yet to come, but for the present age too, that in Jesus Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave or free, male or female. Those categories that we give to put people in lesser capacity, that we put them, let's say, in boxes, and we have all of these boxes of which is better and which is worse in whatever, that those categories are no longer a part of the Christian error. It's no wonder Jesus, when he taught the disciples to pray, the Our Father who art in heaven, has us praying, because it is our prayer too, that the kingdom of God come to earth in our time too, as it is in heaven. That the oppressed, the disenfranchised, are not a lesser class of people than anyone else. that women have a high role in the view of God. It is so easy for us to box up so many types and say, they are not fully there. Or I am better, you are worse. I'm the good guy, you're the bad guy. And Jesus takes this illustration to us today even, that in saying there is no marriage or giving in marriage in heaven, there is no discrimination. That all people, all people are God's people. And that this tragically widowed seven times women did not belong to anyone, but she, like us, will be children of God and children of the resurrection. Oh, what good news it is. But the argument isn't over. And so Jesus fights on the level that the Sadducees understand. The Sadducees said their scripture rests with Moses. Well, let's go to the story of Moses. Let's go to the burning bush. This is an important part of their theology. It is a high point where God touches humanity. And through Moses, they have an understanding of God. You have five books. Genesis is what happened before Moses. Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy is what Moses writes. 
And in fact, you can throw in Joshua, but they didn't, which is what happened just after Moses. But here, he goes back to the story that puts Moses on the scene. The bush that is burning, that is not consumed. The taking off of the sandals because it is holy ground. The announcement that I am the God of your Father. Jesus didn't put that in here. This be Moses' father back in Egypt, long died. I am the God of your Father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Then Jesus adds, God, isn't he the God of the living? Are these men alive? How could he be the God of the living if there wasn't a resurrection or at least a hope in a resurrection to come? There's no answer they can give. They'd not heard that argument before. There's no words that they can say. And some of those scribes that are standing in the area, I did not include this verse, say, uh, we're astounded at what he said and said, teacher, you did well. So here's Jesus attacked with a trick question, question about theology. The only one really about theology of this level, of any of the inquisitors of Jesus, I believe. They tell a horrific story, show their lack of, empath of uh, empathy towards people, and in showing that lack of empathy, they say, this woman's die, who does she belong to? And Jesus makes the radical statement that is even radical in our ears today. No one is owned by anyone. All are children of God, are children of the resurrection. We belong to our Lord.